0: All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for hope I used to find In a case of lines and folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz
0: all right, Brendan, it is August the 8th. Um, I'm about to send you on a solo mission for, for an interview, but um, before I do, you know, the U.S. women had a disappointing end to their World Cup, uh, World Cup run here, and it's been kind of a little bit of a hot-button issue. So I'm just curious if you've got any thoughts or any thoughts on soccer in general. I know we're about to embark on a new EPL season with a bit of a different... Look, uh, soccer world is being shaken up in all all different
2: kinds of ways right now. Yeah, I feel like we can do a whole episode just on soccer, the state of soccer these days. You and I, our, our teams are facing off to kick off the Premier League weekend on on Sunday, Liverpool and Chelsea. So we'll look forward to that. I, I I don't know if I can name five players on Chelsea after this this last year, which is very sad for me. But who knows? I'm sure, I'm sure by Sunday I'll be ready to go and I'll fire it up if, if we watch together. Uh yeah, I, I got up and watched the women play on Sunday. Certainly disappointing loss. Probably the best game they played the entire tournament, but still just couldn't find the best back of the net this tournament and lost in PKs in a heartbreaking way. If anybody watched or saw the highlights, the ball, i still not totally sure that it got over, but that's that that's soccer. You don't get a real any sports, I guess, in general, games of inches. It, uh yeah, I mean this the US team they didn't look good all tournament there certainly no complaints that they deserve to be moving on at this point it's the worst finish they've ever had in a world cup since the women's world cup started in 91 they were the two-time defending champs but i mean there's a reason that no team men's or women's has ever gone back to back to back and that's certainly showed showed this year with this team
0: yeah i mean that obviously there's a lot of uh god i don't know why hoopla is the, like the one word that comes to mind it's a, that's probably a terrible word just in gen- <laughs> just in general but surrounding this team because of both obviously their you know historical on-field success but also um a lot of the off the field uh, sort of yeah political initiatives for lack of a better word in in that in pushing for um for equal pay for the women's team Um, and largely sort of touting their success in contrast to the men's team. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny, funny is probably not the right word, but you know, we're looking at a team that advanced through the group stage on the women's side and for the men in the men's world cup, like anytime we advance through the group stage, like that is, that's the victory right there. And everything else is like ice icing on the cake. Whereas in this side, there's nothing but, uh, but disappointment because of how well they've done in the past. I told you I had a few hot takes on this. My number one is that this is actually good for the women's game just in general. Um, I think like better competition globally only serves to elevate women's sports and the game in particular, um, like the greatest game football in particular, just because you have, I mean, it's, it's obviously that one truly, truly global sport and the U S have dominated, but in large part, because of the, um, resources that American women were receiving that many women out in elsewhere in the world, even though ours were substandard in many ways to what the men's team are receiving still, you know, far, far and away a better type of development, um, organization, than then right women's sports in other places not to not to make any comments about that but just to see the game kind of elevated and have it actually just be more challenging um for us to get through obviously the results aren't there but or weren't there this time around but um i think in in general it's a it's a good thing
2: sure and i'm not the first one to make this comparison but the comparison between this women's soccer team and the 2004 men's basketball team, who had a, a poor showing in Greece at the Olympics after years and decades of dominating the the global game, all of a sudden other countries were starting to catch up, and you see the same thing here. Not only is the United States out, but Germany's out, Brazil is out, Canada's out, and so yeah, I think globally it's it's fair to say like the women's game is is growing exponentially, which is good and just like when we saw like basketball who are the best players in the world right now you have you know Jokic from Serbia and Doncic from Slovenia and Giannis from Greece and Joel from from Africa and uh, so that's you know we could say for years that the United States had the best players in the world obviously there were other great players in Canada and Australia but uh, now that's that's even more so so yeah I agree with that I do think there was a lot of ambivalence around this team while in the past with generally when people are rooting for United States teams, even at things like the Olympics, we've talked about it. You don't know who these people are five seconds before the race starts, but then as soon as you do, it's USA, USA, USA. And we've seen that across individual uh, sports and team sports, but this, the women's team, they have been very active member. Certainly some of the more visible members of their team have been very active outside off the pitch and for some people that makes them heroes and role models and people to look up to. And for other people, it makes them villains in some ways. And so I, uh, this was an interesting one because you have a lot of people that were devastated by this loss and a lot of people that were cheering this loss. And quite honestly, as usual, I can see both sides of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I, I feel like that, like the, the Venn diagram of like how you're, when you're supposed to be, you know, patriotic, at all times that all of a sudden the politics don't align with the way that you want them to line. And then the patriotism can go out the window. I always find that aspect of, uh, of that to be a little bit interesting. Um, but I think you said it kind of best though. It, soccer, especially because the world cups every four years is a, is one of those sports that's very difficult to, to three peat, and it's, it's also interesting to see at the highest level a little bit of like the politics of soccer right you you had you had women who were there for their third world cup which meant that they had been on the team at least 12 years if not longer which you know if you know anything about the nat- national or sort of like the the international game people in their thirties are typically sort of like the, the over the hill crowd when it comes to soccer, which is, you know, crazy to say, but, um, but it's, but it's sort of true. And that's like, that's basically one of these things that, that comes up a lot in soccer is that, like, you have these aging stars, you owe them respect, but to, to what degree, you know, do you, do you, do you have to rely on them in in these moments when other teams are, putting forward all this like super young talent. Obviously there's a lot of benefits that come with experience, but soccer is a very physical, very fast game. Um, And so there's a lot of benefits that come with youth too. And unfortunately our, our mix didn't work out. I think there were some coaching issues on top of uh, uh, yeah. On top of a, a number of other things, the chemistry just didn't seem to be there the way it had been in previous tournaments. But I think all in all, we'll look back at this and see a women's game that continues to get better. Um, and the product on the field is, uh, is I think ultimately what's, what's important. Is it entertaining? And, and it, it definitely is.
2: Yeah. And the beauty of the women's game is that we get the Olympics next year. The The men's like national teams don't play in the Olympics. Well, like they're 23 sides, but the women's play like they're full teams. And so, will I, I think to your point this will expedite the transition from the megan Rapino and alex morgan you know julie uh arts generation into the like we saw uh, uh trinity rodman and sophia smith and Alyssa thompson so yeah it, well they'll have another shot next year which is great for them i'm sure they'll be hungry now
0: yeah for sure well i took us um in a bit of a roundabout way but um Let's uh let's give the people a little bit of a sample of what they're uh what they're gonna hear for the rest of the episode.
2: Yeah, well you're not gonna talk to the rest of the episode, so you had to get it in these first few minutes and talk about whatever you want, which is which is great. Uh as I do. We are <laughs> we are going to hear again and welcome back to the program, uh, Professor Barry McDonald, who is a constitutional law and Supreme Court expert. He teaches out at Pepperdine at the Cruiser School of Law. I'll give him a bigger or longer introduction when he comes on, but Uh, he's written and appeared in in many major publications writing on the Supreme Court and constitutional law. And so we had him on the program last year, back in October, he gave his opinions like almost like a preview of the Supreme Court's term. So we're really excited to have him back to now do like a, a post review of the Supreme Court's term. Now that all the decisions are in you and I did an episode a few weeks back looking at this, the, political and social implications of some of the major decisions, but this is very much for the lawyers and law students and people that are really interested in like the law and the opinions will we'll dive into it with uh Professor McDonald. And so yeah, it's really looking forward to it. Uh we feel very grateful that he has now continued to give us his time. A recurring guest it, for anybody that listens to PMT too.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, love the Friends of the Pod. Well, without further ado.
2: Um... Whoa, no, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> We're not so fast, my friend. Before we get into it, we have to remind everyone the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman over at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, I got a good one for you. I think. <laughs> I'm ready. All right, if I told you a convoluted joke about a golf club, a sheep, a stinging insect, a tree, and that scary clown movie, would you be-leaf it? Wow. I mean, you really put that one together.
3: I like it. I thought it I
2: think it's good. Again, I got it. like as I said last time too, we should have a rating system for these. I'm giving myself like a seven or an eight on that one.
0: Yeah, no, creativity, high marks.
2: All right Now, now, let's bring on Professor McDonald. We are now thrilled to welcome back to the program, Professor Barry McDonald. Press McDonald is a professor at the Caruso School of Law at Pepperdine University. He graduated from Loyola University of Chicago, then went on to Northwestern University Law School. After graduation, he clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit and then at the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Rehnquist. After that, he went on to work for the U.S. State Department and in private practice Now, like I said, he teaches at the Crusoe School of Law, where he teaches constitutional law, First Amendment law, comparative constitutional law, intellectual property law, and contracts law. He is a recognized expert on constitutional law in the U.S. Supreme Court and is frequently interviewed or writes in major media publications such as The New York Times, The Washington Post, CBS Evening News, CNN, Fox News, National Public Radio, Los Angeles Times, and, of course, a gentleman's disagreement. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again, Professor McDonald. Oh, good to be here, Brendan. Uh, so particularly excited to have you back, like we were just talking about, because if people have listened to the program for a while, Professor McDonald came on last October to preview some of the major cases that were on the Supreme Court's document, and we discussed what he thought might the court might decide in some of these major cases. Now that we're on the other side of the court's decisions, really excited to hear His thoughts on what what surprised him, what he thought, you know, what happened, the things that he thought were going to happen that did happen or did not happen. So without further ado, let's get into it. We're going to talk about five major cases. We're going to talk about the affirmative action case, the free speech case, the voting rights case, the independent state legislature case, and the student loan case. Uh, So I want to start with the affirmative action case, because Back in October, you were very much like on the fence about this one, and more on the fence about it than I was actually. You were kind of like given some personal feelings that Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett have. You could have you saw the case potentially going either way. Not it wasn't as straightforward as a lot of court observers thought in your mind. So now, I'm sure anybody listening to this knows the affirmative action case struck down Harvard's and UNC's consideration of race, their their race-conscious admissions programs, um, and essentially ended affirmative action in, in college admissions. So, Professor, now that you've seen the case come out, you've read the opinions, I'm sure, What what are your thoughts on that case?
3: Well, I mean, yes, it technically has ended affirmative action in college admissions, but, you know, in the last paragraph, <clears throat> Chief Justice Roberts was emphasizing that, uh, well, you could always read about a person's racial experiences uh, and take that into account, but you have to ignore the racial part of it. So I'm I'm not sure how that's going to work. Harvard issued some statements that sort of mocked that I thought um, saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll read about racial experiences uh, (laughs) and we won't take into account race. Uh, I just don't know how that's going to work. And, um, it's going to be interesting litigation after all this.
2: Well, the way I read that was he wanted to separate the box checking of check the box if you're Black or Hispanic and that you're going to be kind of treated one way, which their score, their admissions scores seem to indicate, versus that if you have a particular experience where you've been affected by race growing up, if that's a, a central part of your identity, that's something you could think you could still write about in an essay and, and the school could still consider that in your application.
3: Oh, yeah, no, no, that's correct. But I mean, the $64 question is, uh, how are you going to prevent schools from using racial experiences as a proxy for race uh, in their admissions decision? Uh, And, uh, you know, it may be harder, uh, I suppose, to uh, justify that if, if the numbers are looking more towards sort of managing you know diversity the way that Roberts accused Harvard and UNC of doing uh but so we you know i think a lot of questions remain and um it, 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 we're we're just going to have to see how this all plays out in future litigation it's not over by any means
2: oh for sure not not only in college admissions but i think this certainly opens the door for attacking affirmative action programs across the board whether it's in employment or uh, you know internships or th- those sorts of things as well. Correct, no question about that. Yeah. So, what did you think of Justice Thomas's opinion? Obviously, Justice Thomas has been at the forefront of trying to end affirmative action in higher education for decades now, and this is very much a vindication of his personal belief. Uh, so, what
3: what did what did you think of his opinion? Well, I thought it was pretty much what he had said on numerous occasions in these uh affirmative action or racial preference type cases that he believes that uh racial preferences do a lot more harm than good uh they you know he he's made the argument many times that they put uh minorities in competitive pools where they're overmatched and they end up hurting their scholastic achievements uh he thinks that they uh and I think, you know, you almost hear him talking about his own personal experiences here. Uh, they they sort of uh, promote the stereotype that minorities can't make it on their own, you know, without any assistance by white majorities, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, so I just think that, uh, you know, he, he's taken a very colorblind stance on the Constitution and, uh, uh, you know that's I, I, a legitimate uh, position to take. It's just that I don't think it, you know, my own opinion is that doesn't, you know, this goes for the whole majority opinion, not not just Thomas's opinion. Um, color blindness as a matter of originalism, you know, they love to tout originalism is, is questionable because, I mean, go back to the slaughterhouse cases. There's a paragraph towards the end of that decision where they're talking about the equal protection clause. They talk about how it was designed to prevent ongoing discrimination uh, against recently freed African-Americans. And um, so the question is, you know, if you're trying to grant racial preferences to combat uh, past and ongoing discrimination, you know, is that more in line with the historical purpose than the colorblind account? Uh, I tend to think that you could make arguments both ways. Uh, but I'm always a person that if there's a constitutional issue that's uh, questionable or dubious, uh, it, unless you can get you know seven or more justices to agree on the answer to that, you ought to leave it to the people. And, and here what the court is doing is issuing a, another democracy-busting opinion like they have in the Second Amendment cases and a lot of other cases where they're not letting majorities decide these uh, debatable constitutional issues. They're doing it, you know, by virtue of five or six votes on the Supreme Court. And I just I just think that's a, uh, a wrongheaded approach. That's really
2: interesting, because clearly Roberts and Thomas and the majority here wants to make the, the law of the land, like a colorblind constitution like that. They they rely heavily on Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson and that our constitution is colorblind. And they read Brown to say that, like, doesn't matter. We shouldn't treat anybody differently based on their race. And again, it's th- these justices have been. Making these arguments for years and decades at this point, obviously, but they're
3: cherry picking those statements out of the general context of Harlan's dissent. Or out of the Brown decision, what the what the court was trying to accomplish, or what Harlan was trying to say.
2: <laughs> right, right. I think, and that that's really Justice Jackson's point. I think was that if you look at the overall, the goal of those decisions was to ensure that like Black Americans in particular had equal protection under the laws, while Justice Thomas and Roberts read it very differently, um, which I, I think is is some of some of the disagreement here. I thought to your other point, one of the Main sources of disagreement here that I found most persuasive on the dissent was Justice Sotomayor writing that in order to overturn all of this precedent, you have to ha- like clear a very high bar, and essentially, while Roberts didn't explicitly overrule Grutter in his uh, in his majority opinion, Thomas essentially says it is overruled in in his concurrence, and I thought Justice Sotomayor's point about the lack of respect that she thought the majority was showing for precedent was strong.
3: Well, I mean, let's be real here, Brendan. Starry decisis is 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 a dead letter now on the court. I mean, uh, you know, once they've elevated this factor of the quality of the reasoning of a prior decision, uh, to the most important factor they consider, I mean, you know, that's in the eye of the beholder. Uh and uh you know, stare decisis, and in, in both the uh, conservatives and the liberals do it. They they rely on it when it's convenient. They pay lip service to it when it's convenient, and uh, you know it, it's really tragic because constitutional law really does have to be, uh, you know, stable, reliable, uh, principled, consistent. Uh, and uh, I think in you know in the last couple of decades, the court has made a mockery of stare decisis. <clears throat>
2: Interesting. I I agree with you. And I I think that was one of the running themes of this term of the court of this debate. I think two of the main things, and I want to get into this at the end, but like two of the main themes for me were debates over stare decisis and debates over standing, which I thought came up again and again in some of these arguments. But I want to quote from Sotomayor's dissent. She said, quote, lost arguments are not grounds to overrule a case. When proponents of these arguments, greater now in number on the court, return to fight old battles anew, it betrays an unrestrained disregard for precedent. It fosters the people's suspicions that bedrock principles are founded in the proclivities of individuals on this court, not in the law. And it degrades the integrity of our constitutional system of government. So that's essentially what she's saying. And I agree with you. Like both sides will use stare decisis when it's convenient to them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I love the rhetoric, but, uh, you know, if both sides, you know, sort of applied it consistently, you know, genuinely and uh, honestly, uh, I'd have no problem with that. But, you know, both have been guilty of that over the years. And, uh, you know, so it's hard to, you know, it's really hard to take that kind of rhetoric seriously these days. That's fair. I I think Thomas has a very different approach, obviously, in
2: that he's long been of the opinion that if the precedent is wrong we should fix it I don't care if the precedent was from five years ago 50 years ago 150
3: years ago if it was wrong
2: we should fix it and what do you think about that sort of approach
3: well he says if it's demonstrably erroneous well what's demonstrably erroneous I mean that's just a convenient cover for saying oh I don't like that decision in a lot of cases I think Uh, so I mean but you know let me say this about Sotomayor's dissent I agree with her that uh, you know the if you look at how the court applied strict scrutiny in Gutter, Grutter or Grutter, whatever you want to say, I hear different versions. Uh, but if you look at how they applied strict scrutiny in, in Grutter and then how they applied it uh, here, uh, they look radically different. It's almost like as if uh, you took Grutter and flipped it upside down in terms of what the court thought were compelling interests and narrow tailoring in Grutter. And so I think that that you know and i don't like this about the the court uh the way it decides cases these days where it effectively is overruling precedent without saying it uh and, and and it's doing that so as to you know to look more judicial and not as political but you know it's just intellectually dishonest the only significant difference i think between uh grutter and this case is the 25 year marker which you know in O'Connor had just sort of thrown that out there as, as a you know, as an idea, as a marker, it really as a principle that colleges needed to, to periodically review their their need to take race into account in order to achieve the required diversity. But it wasn't a requirement by any means. Certainly. And it it Provided a a convenient grounds for the
2: majority to seize on and saying that, like, we can't have these things going on indefinitely into the future. But I think she did it 25 years because it was 25 years. Grutter was 25 years after Baki. And it was, she was kind of like, hey, I hope an additional 25 years, these won't be necessary. That's how I read that. Could be, Um, yeah. I have one final question for you on this case. Do you think that the Baki reasoning, which for people listening that probably know the law pretty well, law students, lawyers. The reasoning in there, it was a splinter case, six different opinions. Justice Powell's reasoning ultimately becomes kind of like the prevailing reasoning going forward, which is that the state has a compelling interest in maintaining diversity. Do you think that actually weakened and hurt the case for affirmative action going forward? In other words, do you think if Baki had come out and been like, the 14th Amendment was designed to protect African-Americans and to ensure that like all of these past discrimination states had the ability to try to remedy these past discriminations that had a that had would have had a stronger constitutional basis than this kind of amorphous were in favor of the compelling diversity.
3: I don't know if it would have weakened the case, but it certainly would have. You know, I mean, Powell marched through. I think uh, three interests asserted by California before he said, "No, no, those don't work," and you know, diversity works, and I, and he didn't spend a lot of time and effort uh, explaining why those other three interests were illegitimate like for example remedying past discrimination he just thought oh that looks too much like a quote or whatever you know and uh i i just think that if yeah i think that if there had been more to shore up yeah i mean diversity could have been one reason or maybe not a reason at all but i think that there could have been other grounds that made it may have made it uh if if powell had framed his opinion that okay well you know, we are a court and we're not here to impose our policies on the American people. And so, you know, if, if there's a good case that it, that a when a Democratic majority, either at the uh, federal, state, local, county level uh, or even at the level of, uh, you know, public administ- uh public universities, <clears throat> that are governed by board of trustees. It's a, if democratic majorities want to accomplish this, there'd be a better be really good reasons, uh, you know, pretty clear in the constitution for us to say that they can't do that. Uh, and I think that if he had reasoned more along those lines, uh, you know, affirmative action would have stood a better chance. Now, I'm not saying I, I think that affirmative action is uh, is good as a, public policy matter. I mean, I think that there are a lot of, and I I don't take a position on that, I think that there are a lot of good arguments on both sides of that. I'm just talking here about the law and and the Supreme Court's proper role in our constitutional system. And I just think that um, uh, once again, you know, just like the Second Amendment, where where it's far from clear that this demands that people be able to walk around with guns, democratic majorities ought to be able to decide these difficult constitutional questions. Yeah, I I think what
2: I, and it seems like we're on similar pages here. What it just seemed like Baki had was a very shaky foundational ground which made it easier for the court to overturn. Press. And it reminds me a little bit of like the Roe case where if like Roe had more firmly like established this right to reproductive freedom in within the constitution it would have it would have served it better. And again, it might not have been any different, the outcome of it, but it was just such, like the, the foundation to me constitutionally seemed weak enough that it wouldn't be too difficult for a majority to overrule such an, like, such yeah, a- Yeah, well, I
3: think it's a combo there of both uh, O'Connor and Powell because O'Connor obviously had the uh, opportunity and drudger to sort of revisit Powell's reasoning. And she had it. She had a majority, I think, any way she wanted to go on that. Right. Uh, and uh, so- you know, uh, I think you could uh, put some of that on uh, Justice O'Connor. Yeah, that's fair.
2: And I mean, I think if you are a conservative, you would argue that it, these these precedents, all of them, rested on very weak grounds, which makes it more make, makes it easier to overturn this precedent and respect other precedent. That would be the yeah. argument.
3: And let me be clear: I don't. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a liberal. I, I pride myself on trying to maintain a neutral, objective, nonpartisan analysis in these things.
2: That's why we like to have you here. All right, let's get into the second case, probably the most surprising case out of this term, which was the voting rights case out of Alabama, Allen v. Milligan. Essentially, uh, Alabama was looking to overturn some of the the course precedent regarding Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Again, most of the listeners probably know this, but the Supreme Court has slowly but surely gutted the, uh, the Voting Rights Act over the years, most notably in 2013 and Shelby. And Section 2 was really the only enforcement mechanism that the Supreme Court had previously allowed to, to remain. And Alabama was essentially trying to take that power out of, the, that enforcement power out. The court ruled against it, um, and despite a long history of cutting down the Voting Rights Act, Roberts, again writing for the majority, upheld the Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, relying heavily on precedent. So, were you
3: surprised by this? As, as surprised as most people were, I guess I was because you know Roberts, you know, has been on record, and especially in the parents involved case. Uh, is strongly saying we ought to get any sort of racial considerations uh, out of the law. But of course, that you know, there you're talking constitutional issues as opposed to statutory issues. Uh, but, you know, that's never stopped the court in the past when it wants to <laughs> go a certain direction. Uh, but yeah, so I guess I was uh, a little bit surprised that Kavanaugh and Roberts uh, allied with the liberals uh to apply the voting rights, section two of the voting rights act in the way that they did. Uh, but I was glad that they did it. Maybe they saw the uh the three-punch wham 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 of uh uh you know of the uh, against what they consider to be probable. Now I'm not saying they personally take this stance, but you know, the 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 woke generation of Biden and all this stuff, you know they they knew they were delivering the the three the three punch knockout of the First Amendment case the uh, the student loan forgiveness case and the affirmative action so maybe maybe they were thinking ahead and thinking okay we 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 can't make this court look too political so we need to be a
2: little bit reasonable here. Yeah, I mean that certainly wouldn't surprise me if that's what Roberts was thinking. And Kavanaugh seems to be following in that mold a little bit in terms of concern about the integrity of the court. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh to something that we had said earlier, Thomas's dissent in here says, quote, in any event Stare decisis should be no barrier to reconsidering a line of cases that was based on a flawed method of statutory construction from its inception. So, again, Roberts in his majority is relying on Starry decisis here. And Thomas is pretty much saying that Starry decisis is wrong and we should overturn this, too.
3: Yeah, and I think that Roberts was really looking at uh, sort of the what he called the congressional compromise that Congress had made to allow these sort of Section 2 cases to go ahead based on discriminatory impact against minorities, where con- uh, Congress but also emphasized this doesn't mean proportional representation based on minority and majority populations in the state. And so I think he was just so- sort of saying that Gingles and the other uh, precedents had honored that congressional compromise. And uh, so he was you know, relying mainly on that. Right. This does seem to me. I know you've been a
2: bit derisive about like the court relying on Stare Decisis, and Roberts all but overturned Stare Decisis in the in the Harvard UNC cases. But if there's any justice on the court that I think still respects Stare Decisis, I do think it's Roberts, and
3: that's what he's relying on a little bit here. That could be, yeah. I mean, obviously, he uh, uh, you know he's trying to preserve the court's institutional reputation. And so, uh, you know, he, uh, when I think he thinks that, it, you know, a result ought to go a certain way, He he's not, he's not shy about upholding stare decisis. But I could point you to look at Citizens United. I mean, uh, there was no reason to revisit the uh, the prior First Amendment decision, but they courts, uh, uh, along with Roberts, Roberts wrote a special opinion justifying it, why it was necessary to revisit this opinion. And so, you know, uh, I just think you need to take the whole record into account when you, when you make these sort of observations. That's
2: fair. That's fair. So in a similar vein, one other case, which I was particularly interested in, was the independent state legislature case out of North Carolina. This is Moore v. Harper, where the north carolina state legislature was essentially arguing that because of the elections clause of the federal constitution they should be able to prescribe the time place and manner of federal elections essentially free from oversight from anybody including uh, in, at least at the state level including the state judiciary uh we had talked about this back in october and you were concerned a little bit about the potential for Uh, the the court to uphold this theory this what was originally a novel fringe theory of the independent state legislature but we come out with roberts writing again in a 6-3 majority that rejected this theory so thoughts on that case
3: yeah well i was pleased that both roberts kavanaugh and barrett uh all together sort of refused to go to the We had three justices, as you know, uh, willing to... It was a fallacious theory from the beginning. I thought it was outlandish, really. But, uh, you know, the the fact that three justices went there trying to support this was, in my opinion, ridiculous. Uh, So it was good to see that those three are at least willing to be reasonable in the face face of legal arguments that are highly questionable. Yeah, I want to get into the legal arguments in a minute, but...
2: Again, for Roberts here, he's relying on Star 8-line precedent, um, the Arizona, v. Arizona like, State Districting Commission from a, f- a few years prior. And I thought it was interesting because he was in the dissent on that case, but he, he relies on the majority in that case to continue to uphold this precedent as he sees it.
3: Well, he, that was the third in a line of precedents he drew on, but and he said that there was unanimous agreement on the principle that... You can't take state courts out of the state lawmaking processes. So uh I think that was a different case because it had to do with an you know independent commission to redraw, taking taking those decisions totally outside the hands right. of the legislature. Uh and so I think he had, he he did have a colorable claim that uh this decision was consistent with sort of the majority views in that case, both the dissenting and the majority opinions. Fair. Uh the case I was disappointed in in reading it a little bit because it actually it
2: spent the argument was really about the standing whether or not there was standing as opposed to the actual like election clause argument I, I I wish there was more but I wish Gorsuch had written this dissent Thomas wrote it uh but Thomas spends most of his time attacking saying that the court did, that should never have heard the case because it was moot uh but they don't get into the the election arguments the election clause argument as much Thomas does talk about it briefly where he says that like he finds them persuasive and Gorsuch and Alito sign on to this. Uh, why did you find it so, would you just put it like fallacious? Why why did you think it was, that argument was so ridiculous?
3: Well, because you're talking about a, a, a provision in the constitution that was meant to sort of assign responsibilities over federal elections. And to say that, okay, well, state legislatures are going to have primary responsibility for setting the rules in terms of the time, place, and manner of federal elections, uh, subject to congressional oversight. Uh, and so it was just assigning responsibility for between the federal and the state government. It wasn't trying to probe into state lawmaking processes or affect that division of responsibility at all. So I think that the argument itself was it's similar to this sort of action in action specious distinction that they trotted out in the uh, obamacare case you know i just when i heard i i just thought that's absolutely absurd i i thought the same thing here (laughs) but that one that 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 distinction actually won in the obamacare cases but it was good that sort of more reasonable heads prevailed in this case all right fair fair enough uh (laughs) the fourth
2: case i want to talk about and um exceptionally glad that you're here because this is part of your area of expertise is the free speech case um, out of Colorado, 303 creative uh, versus Ennis. And in this case, um uh, in this case, a woman who may, may not want to get into this, who theoretically was setting up a business to design websites for weddings was afraid that if a homosexual couple approached her and asked her to design a website, for them for their marriage that she would be forced to do it under colorado's anti-discrimination act and she was arguing that such an art such it would it would essentially compel her to speak in, in a way that violated her first amendment rights the court agreed with her and said that she should not be forced to create a website for couples whose marriage she disagreed with um, in some ways People are saying that this is like a victory for First Amendment rights. In other ways, people are saying this is a real step back for LGBTQ rights in this country. Did you come down on one side or the other, or do you see it as
3: both? Well, I see this as a fairly narrow ruling uh, because of the fact that Gorsuch, in his majority opinion, relied heavily on the stipulations made by the state of Colorado which a lot of people in hindsight are criticizing Colorado for having done stipulating that, you know, if she designed uh, a wedding uh, website on behalf of a gay couple that, you know, the Colorado said, okay, yes, then we're basically making you speak a message that can be attributed at least in part to you uh, of celebrating uh, gay weddings, you know, and, uh, you know, once you say that uh, uh, you've sort of, taken away a lot of the legal objections because now you can invoke, you know, the Hurley decision about the uh, same sex contingent in a parade
1: right here um, in Boston.
3: Yeah. And the uh, Dale versus Boy Scouts and the uh, uh, you know, and then the Barnett decision yep. to say this state can't force you to speak a message. You don't want it. You don't believe in, you know, and then it becomes sort of an easy case. Right, and Gorsuch
2: reading his opinion it, it seemed like he treated it as a very easy case. I mean his his argument is very easy to follow and at one point I think he says like what are we even debating here? Like obviously this would violate the first amendment. Oh,
3: it was based on these stipulations. Right. By the right. state of Colorado. Uh, you know, I I I you know, it's a head scratching why they made all these stipulations. <clears throat> so I think that, you know, I think but this case could uh open up a real can of worms. Uh uh you know, all the other cases are along these lines, like Masterpiece Cake Shop had been decided on freedom of religion. Right. This creates sort of a general free speech right to if you if you hold a sincere belief uh, that you don't want to serve certain people in the marketplace. Now, you know, this case sort of opens up that can of worms. Uh, you know, if I'm a uh, if I if I am a portrait artist and I you know uh, I'm a white supremacist and a black couple comes into my shop uh, and I don't believe that uh you know black people are entitled to have their court portraits drawn now I have a free speech right not to do it now I think that's extremely troubling uh, and uh, I think what's going to distinguish, what these cases are going to turn on is sort of the stipulations in in, in the Colorado made. And so I think it's going to open up grounds for a lot of arguments that, okay, well, if you didn't have those stipulations, here's a lot of other considerations. So it just, again, it's just going to create a big mess of litigation.
2: Right. In this case, the Majority of dissent seem to be talking past each other largely, as Gorsuch is relying heavily on a free speech case. And if you read his decision, it seems like there's no other possible outcome that this was clearly this would be a violation of the woman's First Amendment free speech rights. And like it it, it would be hard to read the the argument and disagree with that. But Joseph Sotomayor and her dissent kind of takes a different tack. and argues essentially what you're saying is that I think she says, um, quote, today the court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. And her dissent is all about like public accommodations law. And I'm I'm curious, one, do you think there's an appetite on this court or potentially like more largely within the federal judiciary to walk back some of the public accommodations doctrines that have existed since like the civil rights part of Atlanta, I think is the case that like, really first establishes it. Do you think there's any sort of appetite to try to walk that back or was this Purely the majority being like, this is a free speech case. This is clearly violating her First Amendment.
3: You mean outside the uh, arena of expressive goods and services? Yeah. So ob- like that don't uh, implicate First Amendment. No, I think getting
2: to like your your earlier point of like if, if, if there are more challenges, First Amendment challenges to discrimination, do you think there's an appetite in this
3: court to hear those types of arguments? Oh, well, I definitely do, especially when you're talking about freedom of religion. But even now with this precedent, uh, freedom of speech as well, freedom of belief. uh, That's why I think it really opens a can of worms here. Um, But I don't think there's an appetite to walk back public accommodations law outside the arena of somebody providing expressive goods or services to the marketplace that actually implicates the First Amendment.
2: Okay, that's fair. But I, I do think like this is if you're looking at this court, we have like the first we have you know freedom of, of religion in the First Amendment that now we have freedom of expression in the First Amendment. But now like this freedom of association, I think, could be like another ground where people could start to push back on on
3: like public accommodations type laws. Sure. Uh, like in the uh, Boy Scouts versus Dale case, you know, they have that precedent already out there. What struck me, though, about. About this decision is I thought it went, perhaps not surprisingly, it was more sort of uh, on the right or conservative than it needed to be, because a lot of times in cases where the government is forcing you to speak a message you don't want to speak, you know, the rule is, oh, you just don't automatically win that strict scrutiny applies. And then you ask, does the government have a compelling interest? And even if it does, are there alternative ways to achieve it? And the state of Colorado was, I think, focusing on that because they were arguing, look, this person's uh, services here are unique. She's, she's a specialist, et cetera, trying to say that there aren't good alternatives to serve same-sex couples uh, with what she provides. And Gorsuch just sort of mowed right through that and said, "Well, the more u- unique it is, the more reason we we have to be to sort of protect our First Amendment rights." So, uh, I just think that that you know now he's sort of giving you know providing a lot of ammo to say, "Well, it doesn't matter if there are alternatives for same-sex couples to acquire goods or services in the marketplace." Uh, you know, we're going to sort of protect. Uh, we're just going to protect the the you know the the, the speaker or or the pe- person that believes a certain belief, uh, regardless of whether there are alternatives out there. Right. That's
2: where I do think there's, and maybe you're saying the same thing. I do think there's more of a door open to get into some of like that that precedent. I, I could see Gorsuch in particular, and I would not shock me for Thomas and Alito too. And they're not going to be around forever. But saying something like "let the market decide." Like all of these laws that we have, like these public accommodation, like anti-discrimination laws, which Gorsuch writes, like Colorado has greatly expanded, as many states have, that now it's not just like public accommodations and common carriers. Now they pretty much apply to like almost any private business that opens itself up to the marketplace. And I could see justices like that arguing that these discrimination, anti-discrimination laws do violate people's First Amendment rights in many ways.
3: Uh, it could be, you know, of course, you've got to have a First Amendment claim, you know, a religious sure. objection or, or you know, a speaking objection. Um, but it could be, you know, it's just hard to say how big of an arena of conflict that this is opening up. Because okay. it's, it's just not clear how, how big a marketplace is for, you know, goods or services that implicate, you know, yeah. sufficient First Amendment concerns.
2: Yeah no I I think that's that's totally fair. I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh who's he's a gay man, he's married and he was saying he was like I love this this case from a first amendment perspective. He's like I love protecting people's rights like first amendment free speech rights. He was like on the other hand I don't like the potential for, you know, no gays that I need to apply to like this sur- service. And so I think I can see why people are like a little bit ambivalent about this type of case.
3: Well, I read about one uh, one uh gay advocate saying, I love this case because now I can refuse to serve bigots, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but as long as he serves a expressive product or one that implicates his religious beliefs. Um you know, but that's I think gonna be the real question is you know, if you if you're a lawyer uh and uh you know you're a gay lawyer and you're asked to draft a uh uh, a will for a uh, you know a uh, somebody that you know is is a bigot an avowed bigot uh, you know do you have a first amendment right to decline to do that under this precedent is a will sufficiently expressive to invoke the first amendment that there's a lot of big questions that emerge yeah. from this case
2: yeah no I do think it's it, it, while. Wow. While uh, Justice Gorsuch made it seem like a very straightforward decision, I think it's going to have, as you're kind of alluding to, some pretty large ramifications going forward, which I think will be really interesting. I I, I think there's a lot of room for argument in this section of law. Yeah. All right. Uh, last, ca- last case I want to talk about, and we didn't talk about this case back in October because it wasn't on the docket originally. This is the student loan case, Biden v. Nebraska. This got expedited review because of the millions of 43 million people that were kind of in limbo by the by the lower court's decisions so we obviously the the court uh said that the secretary of education did not have the power under the 2003 heroes act to uh forgive uh 130 million billion dollars in in student loans did this case
3: surprise you at all no uh <laughs> Not at all. Uh, I mean, this was basically a replay of the West Virginia versus EPA case yeah. about the, uh, the, you know, the Clean Air Act dispute. Um, uh, I knew that the, uh, the court was leaning towards viewing this as a major questions case, but I know uh, Roberts was still probably smarting from Kagan's barbed pen Heard barbed dissent in the EPA case about the major questions. So it wasn't surprising to me at all that the first part of Robert's opinion was just, a, he said, oh, this is just basic statutory interpretation. Uh, and even if it weren't the major questions doctrine says that the, uh, you know, the Biden administration didn't have authority here. So he, he sort of hedged his bets. Uh, it, but, you know, uh, Kagan's barbed pen flew again. I think oh. she's becoming the... Uh, the Antonin Scalia of the left in terms of uh, her, her witty, you know, barbs and, uh, and to the, to the point where Roberts in the, in the last paragraph, his opinion basically said, stop it. Uh, uh, You know, Elena, you're going to ruin the, uh, you know, the reputation of the Supreme court. Come on. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> you know Scalia's uh, dissents were just as uh, barbed. I mean, look at the, his dissent in the same-sex marriage case. I mean, it was the Obergefell case. That was even more barbed. But <sighs> yeah, I think so. That exact. I had that
2: line highlighted. Roberts at the end of his opinion says, "quote It has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with with which they agree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary." Um, we do not mistake this plainly heartfelt disagreement for disparagement It is important that the public must not be must that the public not be misled either. Any such misperception will be harmful to this institution and our country. Uh, and Kagan, as Professor, you're, you're alluding to, is pretty much saying that the court is um, the court is going outside of the bounds of its business. It is um, it's inserting its policy judgments instead in place of Congress's and the executive branch here.
3: Yeah, and that's the same complaint that a lot of liberal uh majorities have, or I should say, that's the same complaint that a lot of conservative dissenters have made against liberal majorities. I mean, you know, so, you know, you read this stuff, and you're, okay, trotting out the rhetoric here. But yeah. it's true. I mean, but it, that doesn't mean it's any less true. I do think that the uh conservatives have sort of made up this major questions doctrine. Uh in good part, not I'm, I'm not saying exclusively for, for, for the exclusive reason, but in good part because they disagree with a lot of the policies underlying uh, a lot of these Democratic administrations. And, but, but, it's, but the, you know, the shoe fits on both sides. You go back in time and the, the liberal majorities were doing the same thing. I mean, so it's just we need Supreme Court reform in a big way uh, to make this as not, a nonpartisan a tribunal as possible, but you know we're sc- sort of going to muddle through all this because that's impossible to get that kind of reform with Congress the way it is. Well, what sort of reform would you be in favor of? Well, I mean, I, I would be in in favor of starting from scratch and just rethinking this from the ground up. I did have it. If you're really interested, I did have some suggestions in the New York Times in an op-ed piece I wrote there. Uh, but uh, I mean, the simplest thing would be simply for Congress to uh, increase the size of the court in a non-packing way, in a way that, you know, it, it, every two years you add a seat. So, you know, you, you don't know who's going to benefit from that until you got to 15 or 17 justices. That's not a cure all by any means, but it's the I think it's the easiest fix where it makes it harder for these sort of partisan voting blocks to form. I think you just get a better decision making out of uh, multi-member uh, judicial bodies uh you know look at the european court of human rights uh that starts with panels but if it goes to the full european court you have 47 uh justices looking at a particular issue uh i just think it, it makes for better judicial decision making i'm not saying it's a cure all it's not uh but uh you know i do think we could impose term limits without a constitutional amendment i mean uh You know, you talk about good behavior. Well, that doesn't necessarily say it's a lifetime in the way they've, you know, both sides, the liberals and conservatives have stretched constitutional provisions in their interpretations. This would not be, uh, you know, beyond that at all in terms of stretching the meaning of the Constitution. So term limits, increasing the size of the court in a non-packing way, uh, I just think, you know, would be the easiest fixes. Uh, But if we are going to restart uh, our thinking about all this, I think we'd have to focus not just on the court, but on our whole uh, constitutional system. Because the real problem is that the founders never envisioned the rise, the rapid rise of organized, national, polarized political parties, the the two party system. They never envisioned that. And uh, uh, they certainly didn't build it into the Constitution. They were looking at George Washington. You know, as the leader of the country, who despised uh, partisan politics, uh, and but as soon as he stepped down, boy, those those political parties just began to fill the void, and and our 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 system just wasn't built for that. We need to give look at the, look at the candidates that we put forward in presidential elections. We need to give the public uh, better choices. You know, more moderate choices, not ones that are supported by the extreme money on both sides of the political spectrum uh it, it's just a you know there's i think the new york times did a good uh, exposé on this thing uh in terms of how we sort of rebuild our democratic institutions i contributed to that there were other contributors it, you know might be worth for people to look at
2: yeah no that that's great um, some fascinating and somewhat radical suggestions uh one other thing that you brought up earlier that i wanted to come back to is that you said that the supreme court in recent decades has not had a ton of respect for Starry decisis. And I think it's easy to get caught up in like this court in particular, not having that respect, but is this, a, you're saying that you've seen this trend for a long
3: time now? I don't think that either side has let Starry decisis stand in the way when, when they feel like, you know, they really want to sort of overturn uh, a major decision. Uh, but I do think that the conservatives have made it a lot easier to disregard starry decisis. If you if you look at the factors that, like, for example, you go back to Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which was all about Starry Decisis, Roe versus Wade. You didn't even see really uh O'Connor in the factors of Starry Decisis talking about the quality of the prior reasoning. I mean, for obvious reasons, that's in the eye of the beholder. Right. But now it's become the most important factor for the conservatives. And, uh, you know, once you say that, you know, stare decisis is just, uh, you know, it's just whip service after that.
2: So you're saying that it's really, even though this maybe have been trending for a little while, it's really kind of fallen off a cliff in the last couple of years. Yes. Times. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so I guess like final thoughts, now we've had two terms of this court has this did this past term change your perceptions at all reinforce certain things like now that we're starting to see this court more fully flesh itself out it was hard with barrett's first term and now this was i guess this was jackson's first term but um thoughts on
3: on this court now two terms in i think it's a very bold conservative court i mean and they're not shy about overturning precedents that they don't like and um I don't know how many more are out there that they may be gunning for because they've certainly shot down a lot of them. Uh and what's but I do think that um you know you have you have the sort of the moderate right forming of uh Robertson Kavanaugh, maybe sometimes Barrett, uh that are going to try to rein that in a little bit but even they are willing to sign on to overruling substantial decisions in in conser- you know traditional con- conservative uh contested areas um you know what surprised me is that that conservative majority has been so brash as soon as they got power they started whacking these things down and um Even amidst all this heavy criticism that they are have become a a political institution. And if so, they should answer to the voters and not have lifetime appointments to issue their decrees on the American people. Uh, And uh, they just don't seem to care about that anymore. It's become sort of a a power game. And I think you see that bleeding over into this whole ethics controversy. I mean, the revelations coming out recently are stunning, you know, in terms of the behavior of some of these Supreme court justices, you know, in an earlier day, they, some of them would have early, clearly merited impeachment. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just, uh, we've, we've reached a, uh, a, a, a new attitude where it's just sort of brass knuckles, uh, partisanship. And I think it's even infected the Supreme court and, uh, I do think it's 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 damaging, you know, for the country. Uh but I don't I again, I don't want to overstate the Supreme Court's role. Uh obviously we have problems in Congress and in the executive and at state levels. The Supreme Court is just one big cog in the wheel that we need to sort of we need to get our arms around this whole, you know, partisan divide, this cultural war. Yeah. That, that seems totally fair. It's been,
2: even as someone that has agreed with many of the decisions over the past couple of years, it's been disappointing to see the, really the the regression of the the court's image in the public eye um, over the past couple of years uh, for not only the decisions, but paired with all of the ethical things that have come out and just everything that's seen, even just like the process of getting some of these justices to the Supreme Court and how political that's been. So that has been disappointing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we we can maybe hope for better in in uh, this upcoming term. Uh, who knows what what we'll, well see? Well, I don't
3: know what, what. I'd have to think about it to see what else is out there for them. Right. To go but uh, I think they've accomplished a lot of that work. Maybe things will get quieter uh, for a while.
2: Yes, I think quieter would be a good thing. I, I've repeatedly said on our podcast that like I just can imagine Justice Roberts, and I know he's not blameless here, but like in his office, like kind of with his head in his hands, being like, Come on, guy, like what are we doing here?
3: Well, I would agree with that, except for his, you know, joining the court in, in the Second Amendment cases, uh, you know, in this affirmative action thing. Uh, you know, he, he's definitely on the side. He's he's a strongly conservative personage. He's just sort of torn between the court's institutional interests and his own sort of conservative proclivities. Yeah, I mean, but he seems the only one that's torn at all. Well, I think Kavanaugh is indicating that yeah. that he yeah. he has a lot of angst about you know these things. So, yeah. and that's a majority if if you need it. So, right <laughs> to at least make it more of a centrist court. So I, I'm hoping that,
2: that's how you got the voting rights case, right? Like that's that's about it. Yeah,
3: <laughs> exactly.
2: All right. Uh well thank you so much again professor for for joining us and uh we really appreciate like your expertise and insight on this.
3: Oh, I don't know how expertise it is, but oh. uh I appreciate uh, always our conversations. It's always a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you so much. All right, take care.
1: We stay up all night On Garner Avenue Debating All the issues Of the day No agenda Not yet Talking heads Round and round till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some mornings left your ego Bruised but what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The opinions we share On that American idea Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than rain. So we're along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some mornings let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give. Pope I used to find In an occasional lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we shared an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell. Full of force, just like you and me When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But well, I wouldn't give for Hope oh, I used to find And chase a crazy lion's head Folks, of different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And a an early morning buzz of what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lies Head. Folks, of different minds, Because though we did not share Opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over hoggy mats in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.